0: back we are doing it again we're doing it again starting off that new book always a fun and exciting time here at mark's madness pod we read books my name is nathan
1: my name's david
0: and we will be diving in momentarily to uh the very beginning the preface of george jackson's blood in my eye uh but before we do Mm -hmm. that uh if you're new to this uh at the beginning of most episodes we like to do a little uh just current events roundup Um, This is not a current events show, but we do put a little bit in at the beginning of each episode, just to try and contextualize things that are going on, uh, this, that, and the other. Um, Yes. That being said, this is normally where Nathan kicks it over to David and says, David, current events. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, I I mean, obviously, there's an ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, That's the one that'll get coverage. Uh, There's the ongoing genocide uh, in Yemen. That cannot be done without the United States weapons. It just can't. It just flat out can't. It's got to be, like, the plane's got to be refueled in the air and everything, and Saudi Arabia is carrying that out um, as the the U.S. puppet there, and that one doesn't get coverage. Um, you know, we're still looking at the world's, the largest outbreak of cholera in world history. We're still looking at immense famine and a horrible bombing campaign there, Um that said, in that campaign, there was... The Indy 500 was in Saudi Arabia, I believe. Um, or Not the Indy... It can't be Indy 500, but there was like an Indy race in Saudi Arabia. Like an F1, or or like an F1 race? F1 race. That's it. That's yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, an yeah, An F1 race. I was going to say, it can't be the Indy 500, because that would be in Indianapolis.
0: That would, that would in fact, F1. be... I was about to say, I was like, they what? Huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but there is an F1 race in Saudi Arabia. Now... Th- the Houthis are fighting back. They're fighting for their lives. And they're worried about bombing, like, you know, fuel sites. And, I mean, they, this is not an indiscriminate bombing against civilians, um, the way Saudi Arabia is doing. Uh, that said, you know, they needed to... to um, attack a specific, I think it was, it was a refuel, a refueling site or a fueling site for, for their equipment. It might have been, um, an airplane hangar or a weapon site. Those are the other, other types of things and, and sometimes oil drilling sites that the, the Houthis have, have shot at. But I think this one was a, a fuel site. And they shot it. And so that was strategic in the war. That was to, you know, fight back and and try to end and and prevent further um, damage in the genocide that the Saudi Arabian UAE are carrying out um, with, I don't just want to say with the blessing of the United States. It can't be done with the the United States again. but it was actually very clever with the timing because when they hit it, uh this F1 race was going on, too. So it was kind of impossible to ignore <laughs> this F1 race that Saudi Arabia is doing to kind of promote themselves and make money and be like, look, you know, we're we're this great place. And then all of a sudden in the background, there's literal smoke going up and it's, oh, what's that from? Oh, yeah. um, We're kind of committing a genocide in the country next to us. So, yeah. Oopsies. <laughs> Oopsies um so you know that happened so that was uh, a very again incredible uh strategic um attack there um beyond that i don't know if there's anything like the problem is it's been three weeks but i don't know if there's anything new on the front you know i mean obviously that the the fight for red hill uh has gone well but the water is still damaged there so people are you know, Hawaiians are still asking people not to travel to Hawaii, not just for COVID and for the uh, usual strains of tourism, but also because, you know, even with Red Hill um, being shut down, uh, the water is still contaminated, the aquifers are still shut down, they're still stressed on on water supply, and having tourists come and take that water supply away is not very beneficial. Um you know, Republicans are still pushing anti-gay and anti-trans bills, and Democrats are still not pushing back very well uh, against that. Um, as is as is life, so we need to fight those bills. Uh, but there, I can't think of a new one introduced since the last time we recorded. There was a big wave of them right before we recorded last, yeah. and we mentioned them. So I don't know if there's anything to bring up necessarily um, that I can think of.
0: That is perfectly.
1: It feels wrong because the world's tumultuous out there, and it's been three weeks. But
0: but there's only so much of it again that, that yeah that needs the kind of context that we're going to bring to it again. There are there are current event shows that exist out there. There are hopefully other sources yeah. that you were getting current events from because again we always come out a week or so after those kind of events. Uh, this is much more just to analyze the big 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 headlines um, and make sure that we're able to analyze those through a a Marxist kind of stance and give you some, yeah. as good analysis on that as we can.
1: Yeah, the idea behind that is obviously we're reading these books so that you can, you know, apply them to your own, uh, revolutionary, um, uh, actions. And that includes, you know, analyzing the world around us under that Marxist lens. And so stuff tends to come up as we read and probably will as we read. And we realized after doing it for a long time that, you know, sometimes there's important stuff to talk about and it just doesn't come up. from certain lines in the book and so we set aside the time to make sure we talk about it and then we talk about it less when we're reading we can focus on the reading more and if it's brought up it's a little more in context and it's not something that we got to worry about you know shoehorning in in case we forget it
0: absolutely uh well that being said we are going to get started on the reading for this week and we are starting at preface uh if you're reading along it is page ix in your books mm-hmm. uh and we start with, in his introduction to George Jackson's Soledad brother, Gene Jean Jeanette wrote, Nothing has been willed, written, or composed for the sake of a book. It is both a weapon of liberation and a poem of love. This book, too, is a weapon, but one entirely willed and purposeful. It was completed barely a week before the author's murder in San Quentin on August 21, 1971. It was sent out of the Adjustment Center with specific instructions for its publication, almost as if the author knew that he would never live to see its appearance in print. Describing it a few days before the end, George said, I'm not a writer, but all of it's me, the way I want it, the way I see it. What he saw and what he wanted, the central passion of his life, was war. The revolutionary war of the people against their oppressors. A war which grew out of the perfect love and perfect hate. I've been in rebellion all my life, he wrote in one of his letters. For a young black growing up in the ghetto, the first rebellion is always crime. George's first experience with American law came at 14 when he was arrested in Chicago for stealing a purse. From then on, his life was a constant succession of arrests, juvenile homes, paroles, and more arrests. At age 18, he was convicted of stealing $70 from a gas station. His lawyer promised him that he would make a deal with the DA if George confessed to second-degree robbery. He told George it was his only chance because he had a record. Don't put the court to the expense of a trial, and they will give you county time. Instead, he was given an indeterminate sentence. One year to life. The first time I was put in prison, it was like dying. Just to exist at all calls for some very heavy psychic adjustment. Being captured was the first of my fears. It may have been an acquired characteristic built up over centuries of black bondage. That was from Soul of Dead Brother by George Jackson. The turning point in his life came when I met Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Engels, and Mao, and they redeemed me. For the first four years, I studied nothing but economics and military ideas. I met the black Guerrillas, George, Big Jake Lewis, and James Carr, W.C. Nolan, Bill Christmas, Tony Gibson, and many others. We attempted to transform the black criminal mentality into a black revolutionary mentality. He wasn't alone in his discovery. At the same time, other prisoners were just beginning to discover Marx, Fanon, and Mao, who provided them with a new way of regarding themselves and their struggle, a new standard of moral judgment. I have been in rebellion all my life. I just didn't know it. The social insights of Marx and others made it possible for them to have a sense of themselves as members of the human community, members of a revolutionary brotherhood. In prison, commitment to revolution has a special meaning and a special price. To be identified as a revolutionary by the prison authorities means an almost permanent denial of parole, separation from the other prisoners, solitary confinement, usually in maximum security wings of the prison, transfers from one prison to another, beatings, bad food. It brings down on you the entire punitive and repressive force of a completely totalitarian system. Inside prison, George practiced a very special kind of devotion and love. When convicts talk about him, they often use the term for real. Many inmates murder-mouth and sell wolf tickets. They do a lot of heavy talking, but when it comes down to the point of action, they disappear. George, however, was as good as his word. Whenever he made a statement of some kind, it would be followed by action. If you were the victim of a racial attack inside prison, there was a good chance that he would turn up fighting for you on, at your side. Most of his quote-unquote offenses inside prison, the reasons why he was forced to spend over seven years in various forms of solitary confinement, including the infamous strip cells in Soledad's O-Wing, a strip cell is a six-by-eight cell with no protection from wet weather, deprived of all items with which he might clean himself, forced to eat in the stench and filth caused by his own body wastes, allowed to wash his hands only once every five days, and required to sleep on a stiff canvas mat placed directly on the yeah, cold so canvas so basically floor.
1: disgusting conditions to, to, you know, torment and degrade you.
0: hmm Yep. The reasons why he was never paroled involve his defense of other inmates. What made him particularly dangerous to the prison authorities was this enormous talent as an organizer. We have to get be together. We have to be in a position to tell the pig that if he doesn't serve the food when it's warm and pass out the scouring powder on time, everybody on the tier is going to throw something at him. And then things will change and life will be easier. You don't get that kind of unity when you're fighting with each other. I'm always telling the brothers that some of these, some of those whites are willing to work with us against the pigs. All they got to do is stop talking honky. When the races start fighting, all you have is one manic group against another. That's just what the pigs want.
1: David. Yeah, um, and and that okay. came from an interview, by the way. Yeah. So um, from, that was directly from from Jackson. Yeah, that was directly from Jackson as quote, um, and and I will you know reiterate again um, because some people will try to twist those words and oh you've got to build bridges you've got to build bridges you will find out <laughs> throughout this book George Jackson is is unapologetic uh about you know racism and and he's not reaching across to the white supremacists right when he's saying what, some of those whites will work with us he's like the the ones that are not you know joining the aryan brotherhood exactly <laughs> yeah um it is not coincidental that the need for unity among revolutionary groups is one of the major themes of this book try to remember how you felt at the most depressing moment in your life the moment your deepest dejection. That is how I feel all the time. No matter what level my consciousness may be, asleep, awake, in between. The thing is, there, and it keeps me moving, pins in my eye to the ball, uptight 24 hours a day. Locked down inside his cell, George devoted himself to study. His painfully acquired scholarship in the fields of Marxian economics and history rivaled that of most college professors. But sometimes for days on end, reality itself would vanish from his cell. I would be sitting in a special locked isolation cell, sometimes even with the lock welded shut, and there would be no one to talk to, just the sound of screaming voices. And because there's no human contact, you could depend on books, no contact with people, special lock welded to the door, Nobody around. I'm strictly by myself. The only friend I had was a book. Sometimes I'd find myself talking out loud to the author. I'd sort of wake myself up and I'd hear myself talking to this other person. I guess it was like some kind of wish fulfillment. When I'm asleep at night, I still find myself talking to those guys. Typing laboriously on a plastic typewriter, George published position papers which dealt with prison life and revolutionary politics from a Marxian point of view he paid a heavy price for his activities when the prison couldn't break him through solitary confinement they attempted to have him killed by other inmates they were forced to frame me and set me up for the final kill the word was out among white convicts get jackson it'll do you some good once he remarked that there had been 20 set set-ups in his life inside prison i got so that when i when he left his cell he was always ready to parry an attack But nothing could mitigate the pain of confinement, and the years stretched out and a whole decade passed. In the context of his life, what happened next had a grim inevitability. On January 13, 1970, a new exercise yard was opened in the maximum security wing of Soledad Prison. Eight whites and seven blacks were skin-searched and sent out into the yard. Predictably, a fight broke out between the whites and the blacks. Without any warning, a tower guard who had a reputation as a crack shot began to fire. He fired four times, and three black inmates were killed. One white prisoner was wounded in the groin by a shot that ricocheted. Black survivors claimed that one of the wounded men bled to death on the concrete floor. Three days later, the Monterey County Grand Jury found that the killings were justifiable homicide. Less than half an hour after this verdict was announced on the prison radio, a white guard, not the guard who had fired the shots, was found beaten to death. All the convicts in the wing were killed where the killing took place, were put into isolation. On February 28th, Fliega uh, Drumgo, John Clichette, and George Jackson were formally charged with the murder. The prison authorities accused George because, in their, their words, he was the only one who could have done it. With their total power of the inmate population, the power of parole, solitary confinement, and the power of life and death, they were certain they could get the kind of testimony they needed when the trial came. And there's I mean, that's really insightful there, too. Right. It wasn't that they were sure, you know, that they had evidence that was right. It was they they were sure they could get the testimony they needed exactly, and they would get rid of George. Uh, when George's parents came to visit him, they used to bring his brother Jonathan. George and Jonathan would go off to one side of the visiting room and whisper together. What went on between them can be seen in this book in the excerpts from Jonathan's correspondence. At the age of 16, Jonathan had an extraordinary insight into the nature of guerrilla warfare. In some of his letters, George was later to refer to Jonathan as his alter ego. After George was accused of the murder of the guard on the 16th of January, Jonathan began to get his first taste of American justice. Jonathan himself wrote, People have said that I am obsessed with my brother's case and the movement in general. A person that was close to me once said that my life was too wrapped up in my brother's case and that I wasn't cheerful enough for her. That's true. I don't laugh very much anymore. I have but one question to ask all you people and people that think like you. What would you do if it was your brother? On August 7th, 1971, Jonathan Jackson entered a courtroom in San Rafael, California and attempted to free three black convicts, one of whom was on trial for assaulting a guard. He armed the convicts and took five hostages, including the assistant district attorney and the judge, still dressed in his robes. He died a few minutes later in a hail of bullets inside a rented van that was being used for the getaway. We're taking over, he said. At 17, Jonathan had already come to the conclusion that the only way he could affirm his sense of justice was at the point of a gun. His experience of life in America had convinced him that the only way he could be heard was by an act of suicidal daring. You can take our pictures. We are the revolutionaries. With these words, he announced to the world that he was not a criminal because he no longer recognized the legitimacy of white law. When his sister heard the news of his death, she cried out, but he was only a boy. Her mother corrected her. Don't say that. He was a man. They killed his father a long time ago. Jonathan wasn't going to let that happen to him. He was going to live like a man. After his death, George wrote in a letter, I haven't shed one tear. I'm too proud for that. A beautiful, beautiful man-child with a submachine gun. He knew how to be with the people. I love Jonathan, but his death only sharpens my fighting spirit. I'm proud just to have known that he was flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. In a news conference three days after, he said, I love that boy. I was the first to stand him up in his crib. Not a crib, really. All we had was a box. I taught him how to walk. I wanted to teach him how to fly. I think I'll think of him now as I think of Che Guevara. George Jackson's last book, Blood in My Eye, speaks with the voice of the dead, not only the dead George Jackson and his brother Jonathan, but the living dead in all of the jails and ghettos of this country. It speaks with the voices of the men who have already given themselves up for dead and who have nothing left to give except a death for the people. It is very much a book by a man who considered himself doomed. In his last letters, George wrote about the judicial process as the end game. He had foreseen and foretold his assassination at San Quentin a thousand times. Ten years of blocking knife thrusts and the pick handles of sadistic pigs. The fact that the author of this book lived with his death for so many years gives this book a kind of special importance, but it would be a mistake to consider it simply as the work of an individual. "'George always refused to consider himself an individual. "'Untold thousands, both inside and outside prison, "'joined in its proclamation of total revolutionary war. "'The book was written literally in bedlam, "'with the author locked in solitary "'for a minimum of twenty-three and a half hours a day, "'in the midst of racious screaming that never stopped, "'the screams of prisoners being beaten, "'the screams of men retreating "'from intolerable pain and madness.'" It is a book about taking the revolution that George worked and died for inside prison out into society at large. His message to his revolutionary brothers is crystal clear. Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here. That people are already dying who could be saved. The generations more will die or live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love and revolution. Pass the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. George Jackson was shot and killed inside San Quentin on August twenty-first, 1971. The convicts who were with him inside the cell block where he was being confined have asserted that he sacrificed his own life to save them from an official massacre. This would only have been in keeping with the character of his entire life. And that's based on an affidavit from the inmates um, that George Jackson basically gave himself up to save them.
0: Yeah. And that is the preface for Blood in My Eye. So we will now be moving on to the work at large. Uh, starting off on title page, blood in my eye, we must accept the eventuality of bringing the USA to its knees, accept the closing off of critical sections of the city with barbed wire, armored pig carriers crisscrossing the streets, soldiers everywhere, Tommy guns pointed at stomach level, smoke curling black against the daylight sky, the smell of cordite, house to house searches, doors being kicked in, the commonness of death. And then we jump into page three, Letter to a Comrade, March 28, 1971. Mm-hmm. My sister has informed me of your release from the political and the political education class you have formed. From her words and your messages, I sense that we are still together. We've gone through approximately the same changes since they separated us the confused flight to national revolutionary Africa through the riot stage of revolutionary black America. We have finally arrived at scientific revolutionary socialism with the rest of the colonial world. I was hoping that you wouldn't get trapped in the riot stage like a great many other very sincere brothers. I have to browbeat them every day down here. They think they don't need ideology, strategy, or tactics. They think being a warrior is quite enough. And yet, without discipline or direction, they'll end up washing cars or unclean bodies in the city-state's morgue. But I was almost certain that wouldn't be your destination, brother.
1: Now can we can we just revisit that right there? Yeah. Right. They think they don't need ideology, strategy, or tactics. They think being a warrior is quite enough. But without discipline and direction, they'll end up washing cars or unclaimed body in the city state and morgue. And this is something. I mean, we've we've talked about Lenin's state and revolution. We've talked about Fanon. Um, oh my god! I've suddenly forgotten the work by Fanon we read. What's Wretched what of the called? Earth? Wretched of the Earth. Thank you. Holy God. <laughs> <laughs> um wretched of the earth um you know and and something that's intertwined is is there's no shaming there's no brow beating there's nothing wrong um with the act of, of, you know, lashing out with it, right? Like he understands the political motivation. You know, Lenin was always like, when people seized lands back, um, you know, during 1918, it was like, good, you know, take their land back. Uh, but there was always this, you know, from Lenin to Fanon to, to George Jackson here, this, this idea of, you know, what, what a lot of people would consider terrorism, these ideas of like individual acts, not organized acts driven by ideology and, and a mass end goal based around that ideology will always just to death, right? Because the people in power, they have a lot of power. You're not the only person ever to be oppressed, even when you are oppressed. So you're not the only person to think, we need to fight back. And if you try to fight back emotionally or by yourself, well, it's perfectly just, and no one will sneer down their nose at you. It's strategically bad, because when you fight back, no matter how you do it, in an organized fashion or disorganized fashion, they're going to crack down. They're going to seek vengeance. They're going to reassert their power, right? There's no reason not to to fight back when they're already killing you. There's no reason not to fight a war when there's already a war going on and only one side is taking casualties. But as that war intensifies, those casualties will go up. The terror will go up. Things will get worse. You don't want to do that without a plan and a goal and an ideology driving all of that. right? Otherwise, you are just intensifying the contradiction and intensifying the reaction from the violent reactionaries holding their power. And so he's talking about getting past that riot stage and getting to that point where the actions have meaning, but understanding that people go through that. And that was something also, you know, Fanon understood, right? People go through that stage. It's very natural, right? When you're breaking away and radicalizing.
0: Absolutely. Though I no longer adhere to all of Nikaev's revolutionary catchism, too cold, very much like the fascist psychology, revolution should be love inspired. His first line contains the incontrovertible truth. The black revolutionary is twice doomed. Uh, Nikayev was an early Russian nihilist. His catchism can be found in Zero, the story of
1: terrorism by Robert it, Payne. I, I was going to say, it, it's Nikaev's catechism. Did we not talk about that before? I thought we did when we were talking about um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah.
0: Oh, we right? very well may have.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: But David, I'm a moron and I don't retain all of this
1: okay well revolutionary catechism is it's it's an old anarchist work and it is very nihilistic and it's like literally like a a, a bulleted list there's like 25 or 26 or something points right where he goes like boom 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 right and it's it's again it's very very, uh, it, it's like, you know, a revolutionary is not romantic. There's no sentimentality. A revolutionary knows is like, it's incredibly utilitarian. Right. And again, explicitly anarchist, explicitly against uh centralized power. So there is some serious shortcomings to it, but there is, there is some rah-rah to it and there is a way that it catches people and, and, and it can make a lot of sense. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, a revolutionary can't, because a revolutionary can't just be about, uh, um, um, Love, right? Can't just be about emotion. It has to be calculated. There has to be a goal in mind. You have to, to, you know, uh, weigh the, the price of your actions, you know, when you look at, at right and wrong. But it's still got to be done out of love. You're not, you're not just going to do it and go, what, you know, no one is motivated by that, right? Revolutions happen because people are starving and they need bread, right? Revolutions happen because people are oppressed and they're tired of being beaten and shot over mundane things. Revolutions don't happen because you've just calculated a goal and, and you've decided that crunching the numbers, it was worth it.
0: Yep. 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 At times I wonder about the present state of revolutionary black consciousness it's really annoying to hear blacks express right-wing traditionalist political ideas. I mean, the same spiel that you get from Wallace, Maddox, Hearst, or Hunt coming from black people like Lomax, young bunch, some recently dead now, thanks to the forces of good. (laughs) I think lady Lomax is still around though, representing Africa with her Anglo saxon vernacular. Her husband L Lomax was CIA. Did you read the reluctant, the reluctant African, which was sheer propaganda for the owner. Disguised in blackface. There are really, these are really dangerous people. When we leak to destroy the owner, we'll have these kind of hard N word to fight. They will use the tactic white left wing causes to protect their bosses. White right wing cause. You must. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, go ahead.
1: I am gonna say something we should probably institute because we are gonna run into um I you know, just the casual use of, of that slur. We should probably go back to um the same way strategy we did it in, in Black Reconstruction where we'll just say Negro. It's not a word we'd normally be comfortable saying as white people, but it it, it, it makes sense as a substitute. Yeah, I think.
0: It was the one Du Bois used, so I, I trust yeah. I trust our boy. So we'll go with that. You must teach that socialism, communalism, is, an old, is, is as old as man, that its principles form the basis of mostly all of the Eastern African cultures. There was no word to denote possession in the original East African tongues. The only independent African societies today are socialistic. Those which allowed capitalism to remain are still neo-colonies. Any black who would defend an African military dictatorship is as much a fascist as Hoover. Are you aware of how the people are living under these so called Africanized fascist cultures? The Congo and the entire west coast of Africa, excepting Guinea and Mar- Martin- Mauritania, holy cow, are still slave states, dominated by westernized black right wing puppets. I'm thoroughly sick of the old just be Simples, fictional hero of the Langston Hughes stories, young ones too. They'll be your main source of opposition in communizing the black colonies here. The good white people who own things will always give them a few inches in their papers or other media. That's how fascism works, influencing the masses and institutions through elites.
1: Yeah, and I, like I was I was warning before this is not he pulls no punches, right? Because he's talking to peers. Yeah. Right, and he's talking to peers on on a level that that expects you to kind of keep up with with the radicalization here, but this is um not an uncommon stance when it it comes to um black socialist. I think we talked about this with Kruma in, in Kruma in Africa is this idea that like socialism is communalism and communalism is You know, very natural to, to most of the global south. Capitalism is something, and, and this idea of private property is something that was exported out with, uh, colonialism. So capitalism is very alien, uh, to places like Africa, uh, or the Americas when you're referring, of course, to, you know, the indigenous cultures here, um, indigenous, you know, land, uh, peoples that were here. So, you know, this is something that that is not a totally new thought, and we'll run back into that anytime we're talking uh, amongst revolutionaries uh, of a colonized class, right? Revolutionaries who are black or um, hail from really anywhere in the global south. Yep.
0: I talked to several black lawyers when I got this last case of pig killing hung on me. We started off agreeing, but they abandoned me the moment I attacked Anglo-Saxon law, capitalism, and the blues. And then went on to recognize, I'm assuming the blues are the police. It's the capital B blues. I am assuming he's not talking about yeah. the music. Um, yeah, no. Uh, and then went on to recognize Black Panthers, Kwame Nkrumah, Seko Torre, Nieri, and Odinga instead of Kenyatta, Lumamba, instead of that little punk in Ethiopia, and Peking instead of Atlanta or Freetown. Yeah. <laughs> I love that little punk in Ethiopia.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, this is this is going to be very, very politically charged. And of course, you know, he also refers to, um, uh, you know, Kenyatta, right? Who was who was very much a collaborationist um, with with colonial people. Who's very very anti-socialist. Um, and when he's saying Peking, that's the the uh, old old way uh, of doing Beijing. Beijing, yes. And so he's talking about you know supporting China uh, over you know Atlanta.
0: Or Freetown. Freetown is no. I'm thinking of Cape Town. Is Freetown South Africa?
1: Mm, actually, you know what? Let me let me double check
0: that. I don't know. I'm probably a moron. Uh, it just sounds like something okay. you put in South Africa. Sounds like a thing. Okay.
1: Those those. No, it's in Sierra Leone.
0: It's in Sierra Leone. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that that said, it is kind of clever too. Again, we just came from reading in Kruma, and there was the whole thing about. Uh, um, The the first African conference Mm -hmm. uh, being moved specifically to undercut Nkrumah's Pan-Africanism over to to Addis Ababa, right? (laughs) And now it's that that punk in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. It's like, oh, wonder what that's a dig about. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) That will be your main source of opposition, the black running dogs. But it's unfair to automatically condemn a black person for not understanding economic and political subtleties. Some are simply confused in an honest way. Some of the arguments they pose will center around the despondent cliche that Africa will invent something unique. It won't be socialism, communism, or capitalism. Often they'll leave out the denunciation of capitalism altogether. You must explain the economic motive of human social history and bring out that there are only two ways by which societies can ever be governed and organized for production of their needs. The various types of totalitarian methods represented by assorted capitalist and fascist arrangements and the egalitarian method egalitarianism is people's government and the people's government and economics is socialism, dialectical and materialist how else can societies be governed? there must be hierarchies or the elimination of hierarchies then show that the greatest contribution to egalitarianism came from Africa the greatest and first examples then comrade you will encounter the faint hearted ideological types like Ali slash Clay hmm it's, was was Muhammad Ali not good at
1: this? Um, so, again, George Jackson is very unapologetic. Um, I certainly remember Muhammad Ali as as someone who is, you know, very much anti-war, um, very much open against racism, but George Jackson had different feelings, and I'm going to trust him on I, that. He I was, am, too. I just... I, I He's a black revolutionary who is contemporarily alive, then. I am none of those things.
0: No. Nope. That, that tracks. Uh, entertainer and tool of the capitalist cliques. Their line is, ain't nobody but black folks going to die in a revolution. This argument completely overlooks the fact that we always have done most of the dying and still do. Dying at the stake through social neglect or in U.S. foreign wars. The point is now to construct a situation where someone else will join in the dying. If it fails and we have to do most of the dying anyway, we're certainly no worse off than before. We find ourselves today forced into a re-examination of the whole nature of black revolutionary consciousness and its relative standing within a class of society steeped in a form of racism so sensitized that it extends itself even to the slightest variation in skin tone. The great majority of blacks reject racism. They have never found it expedient, wise, or honorable to take on the characteristics of the enemy. I think it is vitally important to stress that for blacks, a concern for the survival of the race is not, patently not, definable as racism.
1: Please, God, just put like giant banner on the back of a plane just just that last mm-hmm. uh, right yep, yep, yep. <laughs> for blacks the concern of survival of the race is not patently not definable as racism so again there are so many and, and we run into this you know when we talk about black nationalism we talk about land back there's always this this reaction of oh reverse racism or, or you know and, and again George Jackson is one that is very much about bringing the masses together that doesn't Mean he's apologetic and tiptoes about the necessary um, leadership and the necessary revolutionary ideology that will support these colonized people first and foremost. Right, yeah. this isn't some like blunting off his, his revolutionary stature to, to satisfy peoples who just their their sensibilities are shaken. There's none of that. Right, he brings unity by making sure that people understand that they're unified in the struggle and every facet. Everybody hurt by that struggle hurts. You know, everyone hurts. The total struggle, and so you know, even if you're like, oh, you know, I'm white, and that doesn't hurt me, or you know, we should come, but but you know, universal health care not being here does does hurt me. So we should fight for just that. It's like no, um, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Every one of those things hurts you, uh, and every one of those things hurts. You know, and more more importantly, your you know your brothers and sisters in in the revolution, your brothers and sisters, um. You know, in the working class. Right. And so you have to fight every one of those fights with full uh, rigorous. um, I can't think of the word motivation, whatever you call it. I I think I might have just said rigorous and I meant rigor because I'm an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) But you get the idea. Right. I mean, like you you have to wholeheartedly um, be in that that fight. Right. Because that means everything to you. That's part of your revolution. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what's universal in the struggle because the struggle itself is universal. And so parts of the struggle that affect specific groups, LGBT plus folks, disabled people, uh, that's a struggle for everyone, even those who are not in those groups. Yep.
0: Any explanation for social phenomenon, past, present or future, must present valid arguments and proof. As we travel back into history, honest descriptions and definitions will inevitably overlap. They will differ depending on their geopolitical standpoint. Ideally, they should be colored with as little subjective interpretation as possible from today's world. The present, due to its staggering complexities, is about almost as conjectural as the past. We must prove our predictions about the future with action. So all my comments must be considered the merest supposition. They must be considered in just the same way we must consider all other comments in this area. They merit attention, only in it as soon as I make them, it won't be much longer before I go about proving them. As a slave, the social phenomenon that engages my whole consciousness is, of course, revolution. The slave and revolution. Born to a premature death, menial subsistence wage, worker, odd, man, odd job man, the cleaner, the caught, the man under the hatches without bail, that's me, the colonial victim. Anyone who can pass the civil service examination today can kill me tomorrow. Anyone who passed the civil service examination yesterday can kill me today with complete immunity. I've lived with repression every moment of my life. A repression so formidable that any movement on my part can only bring relief. The respite respite of a small victory or the release of death. In every sense of the term, in every sense that's real, I am a slave to and of property.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's a very powerful and important thought there, right? It lays about... Very much, you know, um, the nature of policing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're talking about that's exactly what it is right that um, um you know you pass a civil service examination and then anyone considered in the bad and mind you you know there's certainly a, a racial uh, and classist tone to the 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 bad the criminals right mm-hmm. um but also you control that narrative you mostly control it you get to put people in the bad anytime they cross you or or you just don't like them right so you can murder with impunity you can th- throw people's lives away into in prison with impunity right mm-hmm. um you can intimidate people into into um confessions whether they're guilty or innocent with impunity um and so that's just you know a stepping stone with power to reinforce that people have no rights right yep. and it's incredibly racialized and that is all in service of property You know, I mean, police very much protect and serve property. And so because of that property, there is a specific force out there, one of many, many factors uh, made simply to put you at property's mercy. Exactly.
0: Revolution within a modern industrial capitalist society can only mean the overthrow of all existing property relations and the destruction of all institutions that directly or indirectly support existing property relations. It must include the total suspension of all classes and individuals who endorse the present state of property relations or who stand to gain from it. Anything less than this is reform.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. And so again, you know, that gives you an idea. This this is something that that. And he's putting it into American context, um, into, you know, because this is a settler colony, right? And this is a settler colony. So you're going to have indigenous people, you're going to have black people, uh, you're going to have, uh, immigrants. And when I'm specifically mean immigrants from the global south, um, I'm not counting, you know, European immigrants because obviously they're treated very, very differently. Um, you know, anyone in, in any of these classes, right? Anyone in any of these classes should have more power than the average person. And the, the, the big property owners, the wealthy people, the people that used to run the government, white people, should all be, you know, at a level below that, just functionally, or you're not getting back the state, just as workers should have a functional state that they control over capitalists, right? And you can see even examples of this somewhat in, like like we've talked about, you know, China, right, has specific laws. were only enforced on urban Han population, right? You know, that's an example of how you would have that. If you don't have that kind of suppression of a former ruling class, it is just a reform.
0: Yeah. Government and the infrastructure of the enemy capitalist state must be destroyed to get at the heart of the problem, property relations. Otherwise, there is no revolution. Reshuffle the governmental personnel and forms without changing property relation and economic institutions, and you have produced simply another reform stage in the old bourgeois revolution power to alter the president balances to remedy the critical defects of an advanced industrial state ordered on an antiquated set of greed-confused motives, rests with control over production and distribution of wealth. If the 1% who presently control the wealth of society maintain their control after any reordering of the state, the changes cannot be said to be revolutionary. The prerequisite, this is, this is in quotations now, um, from John Gerassi, The Coming of the New International. Uh, The prerequisite for a successful popular revolution is that the victors totally junk the old machinery of state. Lenin stressed in the state and revolution, one thing especially was proven by the commune vis-a-vis that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. And again, the working class must break up, smash the ready-made state machinery and not confine itself merely to laying hold of it. The reason is simple enough. A popular revolution means a revolution by and for the popular classes. Its ultimate goal, its ultimate aim is to bring all classes into one. That is, destroy the class state.
1: Re- mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, revolutionary change means the seizure of all that is held by the one percent and the transference of these holdings into the hands of the remaining ninety nine percent. I I know people because of Occupy Wall Street are hearing this and go ah, yeah, you know, like, are we? Past- but this <laughs> remember this was language that was not popular at the time that really laid out um, the centralization of capital um, at the time. And again, this was in the seventies, so that one percent is is all the smaller now. Yep. Uh, but also, you know, he made clear too, it's not just getting rid of the state, right? It is suppressing not just those who had more power from the state, but all people who endorse the property relations as well. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's taken away the, the endorsement of, of capitalism and, and those you know, right wing motivation. So it's not just the people in the 1%, but anyone who wants to uphold uh, the very system that causes that 1%. Yep. Uh, if, if, If the 1% are simply displaced by another 1%, revolutionary change has not taken place. A social revolution after the fact of the modern corporate capitalist state can only mean the breakup of the state and a completely new form of economics and culture. As slaves, we understand that ownership and the mechanics of distribution must be reversed. The problem of the black colony and the brown colony, those of the entire 99% who are being manipulated, can never be redressed as long as the necessary resources for their solution are the personal property of an extraneous minority motivated solely by the need for its own survival. And that extraneous minority will never consider the proper solutions. Again, don't just appeal to the powerful. Please, solve the problems you've caused. We're all in this together. It doesn't fucking work. If, if climate change and and every colonial relation that has, has ever existed both don't tip you off to the, that by now, what the fuck are you looking at? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have this on record from a voice speaking inside the Fourth Reich, and, and he's unapologetic. We'll use that term throughout the book. Um, we th- We did talk about it in the intro, right? Uh, I don't think we did. (laughs) Okay. Well, he unapologetically just calls the United States the forthright. He just does. Yeah, he'll do it the whole time. I mean, again, this is where I was saying, like, he'll take this language, and it's not that it, it needs to be explained that much, right? There's a lot you can understand just because we are people that read a lot of Marx um and and we are people that that you know already have this politic whereas if you just gave this book to the average person it might be like a lot of these words they'd be like what in the world it would sound <laughs> it would sound very buzzwordy like if you just talk about the lumpen proletariat to someone's you know first day hearing of Marx, right um but <laughs> but he's very unapologetic because he's talking to peers in this right yeah, he's, talking, he's to, talking to people talking to, he's talking to other yeah, talking to comrades who are who are um, already radicalized into you know specific action plans and a specific understanding of their ideology. Yep. Um, a lieutenant governor of California orating in public on poverty: one third of the population will always be ill housed, ill clothed, and ill fed. Many urban problems are really conditions that we cannot change or do not want to incur the disadvantages of change. There it is. His one. Yeah, <laughs> Clever how he slipped in the end of that uh, sentence. Yeah. Or
0: we just don't give a fuck.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or, or it'll just make us too uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. It's the, the, the unnamed lieutenant governor of California, thank you. Um, his one-third statement was a calculated understatement. To the slave, revolution is an imperative, a love-inspired, conscious act of desperation. It's aggressive. It isn't cool or cautious. It's bold, audacious, violent, an expression of icy, disdainful hatred. It can hardly be any other way without raising a fundamental contradiction. If revolution, and especially revolution in America, as anything less than an effective defense attack weapon and a cha- charger for the people to mount now, it is meaningless to the great majority of the slaves. If a revolution is tied to the dependence on the inscrutabilities of long-range politics, it cannot be made relevant to the person who expects to die tomorrow. There can be no rigid time controls attached to the process that offers itself as relief. Not if the, for those whom it is pr- principally intended are under attack now. If the proponents of revolution cannot learn to distinguish and translate the theoretical into the practical, if they continue to debate just how to call up and harness the conscious motive forces of the revolution, the revolutionary ideal will be the loser. It will be rejected. Damn. Yeah, uh, again, you know, I mean, not only is he, he very right on a lot of things, but anything right or wrong is, of course, colored by not only his understanding of the state to to struggle to be overthrown and to resist very uh, powerfully, uh, but also his own death, too. And you do have to keep that in mind when you understand this, because, you know, is this him just speaking of, of you know, an out-and-out measured revolutionary? Because as you can see from this, he's correct, 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 and he is brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. Is this him panicking over his death? And then, if you get to, is this him panicking over his death? It's okay, but you know, does that give him clarity or does that cloud his view? You know, um, but what we know very much was as a revolutionary, he understood this needed to be done now. And as a man who is facing his own death, he very much understood this needs to be done now. And he is not beating around the bush on that.
0: Nope. The principal reservoir of revolutionary potential in America lies in weight inside the black colony. Its sheer numerical strength, its desperate historical relation to the violence of the productive system, and the fact of its present status in the creation of wealth force, the black stratum at the base of the whole class structure, into the forefront of any revolutionary scheme. 30% of all industrial workers are black. Close to 40% of all industrial support roles are filled by blacks. Blacks are still doing the work of the greatest slave state in history. The terms of our servitude are all that have been altered. The black colony can and will influence the fate of things to come in the USA. The impact of black revolutionary rage actually could carry at least the opening stages of a socialist revolution under certain circumstances, not discounting some of the complexities created by the specter of racism. However, if we are ever going to be successful in tying black energy and rage to the international socialist revolution, we must understand what racial complexities do exist. When the Minister of Defense and the Servant of the People attacks the strategy of the American Communist Party and the liberal left revisionists for their failure to devise a policy which takes into account the special circumstances of Yankee-style racism, he is not attacking communism and the collective ideal. He is questioning the Communist Party and others less committed sections of the left revolutionary movement about their awareness of the unique problems presented by a particularly vicious and immediately threatening racism. Uh, to be clear and, the the Minister of Defense and servant of the people he's referring to is Huey P Newton
1: yeah he's he's talking specifically about Huey um, combating the the racism within Communist Party USA and of course you know we've talked about we've talked about the the, the lack of an adaptation of black nationalism back uh, you know with Harry Haywood right we've talked about um, you know, Huey and the Black Panthers being unap- unapologetically black nationalists, uh, the Cointel Pro. Um, papers that were leaked, which was literally a break-in, you know, for all the things that we've gotten through FOIA and, and hard work by, by activists to get things released and they still black out what they can and release stuff years later and a little little bit. The reason we know about Cointel Pro is because some people made a daring, uh, work to break into FBI headquarters and get out with the paperwork and, and leak it, right? But that, that makes it one of the most complete, accurate, uh, leaked government records out there. And it was very explicit that the threat was black nationalism, right? um so you know you have to understand how how tantamount black nationalism is to any socialist revolution in this country and when you don't when you try to ignore the, the facets of racism and and do um you know it's something that we call uh being um um what is it uh class um reductionist? Class reductionist. Thank you. My God. My brain is, is goop. Um, you know, if you go with this class, re- class reductionist line or this one that really doesn't, you know, poke the bear or try to address, you know, racism or, or turn over, um, you know, racial hierarchies or, or anything like that in this country, then you're not doing the revolutionary work. And Huey called that out very plainly. Yep.
0: And that being said, we are going to leave it there. We will pick up next week uh, with a letter from. Uh George's brother, Jonathan. Uh, But for this week, we will be ending it right there on page 11. Uh, This has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to do that. The first of which is through email. You can email us marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. The next way you can reach out to us is on the hell site in Twitter land. Uh, We are at Mark's madness pod on Twitter. DMS are open and in our, on our Twitter bio is a link to our discord server, where if you want a more day to day conversation or just a community of people and comrades and folks of all stripes that are, are willing to hear you and listen, listen and, and, you know, provide feedback and all sorts of other things uh, when necessary, uh, join our discord. It's delightful. I love it. Uh, We we play final fantasy and Elden ring. Now it's Elden Ring. See, we've added a new book, new game we've added, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this this is the growth of Discord. Uh, but yeah, we do that. Uh, there's Book Club going on. Book Club is fin- uh, just finished on the road by Che Guevara, and they are starting. Uh, what are they starting? That's a valid question. Uh, Why are you asking
1: me? <laughs> Damn it. Nah. I don't know.
0: Vamp for time, David. Vamp for time.
1: Um, hello, my baby. Hello. All
0: right, stop it. (laughs) They will be starting, uh, anarchism or socialism, Trotskyism or Leninism by Joseph Stalin. So more fun works from, from, from daddy Stalin, uh, coming up in the book club. David, disclaim us.
1: Yes. Um, so of course a long time ago, Nathan came up to me and was like, Hey, you know, I want to read capital and course theory is something along with history that you want to read with someone else Uh, that way you can read over the work you can make sure you understand the context around it uh, you can make sure you're reading it the right way and and, and understanding it and you can discuss how it applies to you and ever since we started and we decided to to make it a podcast uh, our goal has always been hopefully you guys are in some kind of party some kind of organization and in your political education group your reading group you're reading these works along with us and we give you another source of input another perspective another voice. In the group, um, let's say that's not happening. Let's say your group's reading something shorter or something more applicable to a project you're working on right now, uh, and you're reading these works on your own. Hopefully, we can be that reading group. You know, I mean, three people is a little small, but it's <laughs> at least it's something. You know, we can give you context, we can uh, help you understand it um, better, we can help you apply it to your daily life, and give you a chance to review over it. And let's say that's not happening. Let's say it's either work like this, where we're reading it more word for word, almost like an enhanced ebook, or a work we summarize more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you you, uh, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. When these works go out there and guide your actions, it's a phenomenon called praxis. When you take theory into revolutionary action, by definition, uh, praxis can't exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip.
0: Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan.
1: My name is David.
0: And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.